talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. You're listening to Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. We've got plenty coming up in the program. We'll get to Keith Pitt very shortly, the National Party MP uh, from Queensland. And, of course, Queensland at the moment, you may have picked up some of the headlines if you're watching or reading or listening from another part of the world. It's undergoing incredible extreme weather, which is very typical for Queensland. It's tropical at this time, very monsoonal kind of weather especially in far north Queensland. So you've got cyclones threatening and you've got heavy rain, flooding, etc. So we'll talk to Keith about this very, very shortly. Rebecca Barnett will give us an update on COVID-19 vaccines and some of what has been presented as evidence in an inquiry in Canberra over the last two days and uh, some more information from the United States about this growing a sea of physicians that have uh, are calling on the government to stop stocking any more mRNA vaccines, which, of course, under free speech entitlement, they have every right to do, unlike what they were forced to contend with during the pandemic, which we, which is when they were struck off and were basically cancelled on social media. Anyway, we'll get to that a little bit later. And I want to talk about changes in the workforce too. And you tell me whether I'm a cranky old man and worried about younger, more entitled Gen Zs that uh, run around and uh, tell us all that we're working too hard and they should clock off right on five o'clock. But anyway, we'll get to that. Um, Ten Republican senators in Oregon, listen to this, cannot run for re-election in 2024. According to the state's top court, they ruled this yesterday. The court found that the senators are banned from running for re-election under a constitutional amendment approved in 2022. The amendment, Ballot Measure 113, states that lawmakers who miss at least 10 legislative days without an excuse cannot seek re-election. Now, As I understand that rule, and I remember talking about that in 2022, this is not set in concrete. It takes um, a vote on the floor of the House in state legislation to pursue it and therefore take it to the courts for re-examination. It's not set in concrete. But they've gone after these 10 Republicans and they've nailed them. Uh, The ruling upheld a decision from Oregon Secretary of State LaVon Griffin Valade, a Democrat, of course, uh, Ms. Griffin Valade said in 2023 that the senators under the measure would not try for another term after their current term. My decision honours the voters' intent by enforcing the measure the way it was commonly understood when uh, Oregonians added it to our state constitution. Now, the decision sparked a lawsuit from some of the Republican senators, but the Oregon Supreme Court sided with the Secretary of State. That's how it got to court, actually. Justices said they use their typical methodology. Hang on, hang on. It can't be very typical considering the fact that the law only came in in 2022. Uh, In construing the amendment by determining how the voters who adopted the amendment most likely understood its texts. Uh, The ruling applies to 10 Republican senators in the 30-seat body. Um, I'm just looking at the various Democrats are commenting in the Epoch Times about what a victory it is for democracy. 
Uh, Oregon voters approved Measure 113 by a wide margin. Uh, of course, you would uh, when it comes to politicians. Lawyers for the senators said they viewed the measure language as meaning that the lawmakers could run in 2024 since a senator's term ends in January, while elections are held the previous November. They argued the penalty doesn't take effect immediately, but rather after they've served another term. It's a mess anyway. And as we know, Democrats will find any means at their disposal, especially at the higher echelon, which will be decided by the Federal Supreme Court, I should say, in the not too distant future. Bring it on. This is Chris Smith on TNT. Going 360 on the headlines. It's really well-balanced conversation. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, there's plenty to get stuck into from Australia today, both politically and in particular on the issue of energy, including a report in the Australian newspaper citing the fact that there's $10 billion in new gas projects under threat from various environmental they love dragging anything out, don't they? They have to have a tight case, but at least if they drag it out, those that are behind up going broke or will find that the project is inefficient and they'll back away. That's why they do it. Um, we love putting roadblocks in the way of prosperity and jobs, don't we? So let's cross to Queensland now, where National Party MP Keith Pitt is stationed today in Brisbane. Keith Pitt, welcome back to TNT in 2024. Hey, well, it's great to be with you. And uh, sunny Brisbane, where it's quite warm, I've got to say, today. It is. It's warm in Sydney as well. Tell me a little bit about the weather, because uh, you've got a cyclone, another cyclone threatening the coast, and some flooding um, uh, causing some difficulties in various parts of Queensland, right? Well, and no surprise, it's the wet season, and it's wet. Uh, we've had a couple <laughs> of cyclones already. And we've got one which is now low that's parked up uh, in the western parts of well, the northwestern parts of the state, uh, and that'll create some real challenges. But it, it is no, it's nothing that hasn't happened before. Uh, it's summer. It's the monsoon. Uh, we've been relatively fortunate so far in that the, the ones that have crossed the coast uh, haven't been in the really high categories. I mean, a Cat 4, Cat 5 is just absolutely catastrophic, mm. does a lot of damage. Uh, but the, the houses mostly are designed to withstand the lower levels now been a lot of work done over many years in terms of improving uh, flood accessibility and roads and bridges and everything else. Uh, but, you know, I feel for them. It, it's, you know, it's a difficult period of time, but it does happen. I haven't found anyone who's prepared to put their neck out yet and say, oh, look, another cyclone, more extreme weather. And I'm not asking you to present the statistics, but just from my gut feeling, having, you know, commented and covering the news throughout the Christmas period over the last 10, 15 years, I get the feeling that this particular summer period in Queensland has been less volatile than in previous years. Well, it feels a lot like the 1970s, to be honest. I mean, I was very young in the 70s, but I clearly remember the 74 flood that came through not only Brisbane, but my hometown of Bundaberg and right up the coast because a similar thing happened. Cyclone yeah. crossed the coast, uh, parked as a low and very slowly moved its way down the inland and caused a lot of grief. Uh, but, you know, it's a state of extremes uh, and this is what happens. And you know, we live in Queensland because we love it. Exactly. You choose it. You've got to put up with it. Now, the Australian reports today that there's $10 billion in new gas projects under threat from spurious environmental legal claims. We don't value our key revenue enough in Australia, do we? 
Oh, well, I've got a scoop for you here, Chris. That is a complete underestimate. Uh, Scarborough in WA is $15 billion alone, just one project with oh. Woodside, big offshore gas. And it takes years, literally years, not only to get to a final investment decision, FID, but to get all the equipment you need with very long lead times of a number of years, the designs, the approvals and everything else. Uh, and they're currently uh, in a dispute, once again, funded with the Environmental Defender's Office over whale song lines, which I've never heard of. Uh, what? So they, seems to be, a, yeah, whale song lines. They seem to be a new thing. Uh, and you saw what happened with Santos. I mean, that's a five or $6 billion project, uh, which has now cost tens of millions of dollars extra because of delays through uh, environmental lawfare. Uh, you've got any uh, number of other projects which will have challenges, whether they're onshore and offshore. So the resources sector is simply under attack. Uh, and while the Labor Party says things like, oh, of course, we support the resources sector, they fund the Environmental Defender's Office $2.4 million a year to undertake these activities. The EDO. They're there not only to argue their point, they're there to delay projects so that the project creator walks away, aren't they? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, and it's also the investors and the shareholders and everybody else that gets damaged. And they're trying to force that money elsewhere. And it will go elsewhere. It will go overseas. There's lots of places around the world that can produce gas and coal and iron ore uh, and offshore oil in particular. And these big investors and big companies are looking for a rate of return. They want a stable area in terms of policy. And that's more and more likely to be somewhere else that's not here. Uh, it's just a tragedy. You, know, you, you look at what the Japanese High Commissioner said. There's now sovereign risk in Australia. Uh, yeah. That is unheard of. Yeah. Sovereign risk in Australia, and we've done it to ourselves. And I hate the idea that over the last 10 years, we've thrown gas into the same disused basket that they throw coal into, Keith. And yet, you know, as fossil fuels, the two are galaxies apart. Well, Adam Bant hates them all equally, right? He doesn't have a particular <laughs> favourite. He doesn't discriminate. No, no, and he's looking to shut all of those uh, producers down and get rid of all of those jobs in this country. And you shouldn't forget what coal gets used for. It gets used to make steel. Yeah. And guess what steel's used for? To put roofs on houses, uh, to build cars and a pile of other things. And gas gets used to make urea, which grows food, which feeds, feeds not only Australia, but right around the world. And there are no replacements for those options. There are none. So the idea that we can get by without Australia's resources sector, well, that's just fraught with danger. It will make us a poorer country. It'll make every Australian worse off than they already are. And I don't support that whatsoever. Yeah, and I think the mob need to be educated in this regard, and they're not going to get educated by the present Labor government. Now, I can't think of anything more, uh, I guess, destructive than what they're doing, the government that is, with industrial relations. It feels like as if we're going back to the to the 70s. Um, we've now got a, a debate occurring in the House about whether bosses should be able to contact their staff after hours. Like, I would have thought the more global we become, the more emphasis there is on being available after hours because you're dependent on what's happening internationally. Things change very quickly. They can affect your business. You've got to be up to move in the in the dark hours. And I just don't get it. This is not the way forward. It's the way back. Oh, Chris, don't forget, uh, with the trend towards work from home, you're always at home. <laughs> your boss is going to ring you when you're at home. Pretty much all the time, especially if you're in the public service. They're doing two or three days a week work from yeah. home. But I, look, I remember a time when the only phone was the one in the boss's office and you, you couldn't be contacted at all. It was very, very difficult. But there's lots of people who are on call. They get paid for that. Uh, they get supported uh, because they, they, they're in an essential service where they need to be able to be contacted. 
But you're right that this government has taken us backwards to the 1970s, uh, where everyone has to be in the union. If you're not in the union, you'll get black banned. Uh, and those companies that don't support them, they'll get black banned too. Uh, and unfortunately, Mr. Burke is delivering the union's wish list because he, along with Mr. Chalmers, well, they want to be prime minister. That is their lifelong ambition, and that is all they're concerned about. Let's talk about that. I, I was interested to read that story in The Australian today, that the relationship between the Prime Minister and his Treasurer is all but shredded, that they don't even talk. Uh, Jim Chalmers wants to fully reform the tax system, and all Albo wants to do, of course, is to use the tax system to save his sorry backside, as we saw with his broken promises over stage two tax cuts. Um but more than that, Chalmers has his eye on that main prize, the boss's job, doesn't he? Well, the quote from Cameron Milner, who I'm told is a former state secretary for the Labor Party in Queensland, from Chalmers, is heads I win, tails he loses. So it's got nothing to do with the people. It's got nothing to do with providing more money to support them with cost of living. It is all about Jim Chalmers' ambition to be Prime Minister, his level of impatience, and he was willing to do anything to destroy Anthony Albanese. And I think, watch this space. Uh, there'll, there'll be more of this into the future. And Jim Chalmers is a very, very dangerous treasurer. Uh, he has uh, social and idealist positioning on economics. Yeah. Uh, his, his big literature piece uh, about a year ago, Jimbonomics, is very, very dangerous. It's all about spreading the wealth. And you know, it's great to support people who find, it, uh, find themselves in difficult circumstances. But you should also support the ones that earn it. Right? They're out doing the hard yards yeah. and taking risks and putting their house on the line and running small businesses. Well, unfortunately, Labor governments aren't interested in them. They're only interested in distribution. And Jim's only claim to fame, as I understand it, was a fabulous lengthy piece on Paul Keating. Well, he's been a long time on the public purse. You can be sure of that. Uh, he's got a, a, and he likes to be called Dr. Chalmers uh, because of his degree on, uh, sorry, his PhD on Paul Keating. Uh, I'm not sure that that gives you a lot of credit out in the world where people are doing it tough and trying to pay their bills and their mortgages and run businesses and they're making it even more difficult. And if you look back at IR, I mean, there's talk now that they're going to include businesses with less than 15 employees. It will be almost impossible to run a small business. Mm. But don't forget, that is what Labor wants. They want everyone to be in a big company, to be a member of a union and in the collective. Uh, they don't pay, pay well at all for those who have individual thought individual freedoms who want to find their own way. Yeah, it is the Labor philosophy and they're applying it as quickly as they possibly can. I just think it's a throwback to the 70s. I want to take a quick break, if I may, Keith, and we'll come back with you right after that break on TNT. TNT's Timothy Shea. The race is essentially now Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley. Ron disappoints us will be pulling his hat from the ring next and the issue, as always, is why is the Nikki taking so much of the left's money? Well, maybe this will give you a little insight. She credits Hillary Clinton with inspiring her to enter politics, having attended a women's leadership summit at which Hillary spoke. And Nikki said, and I quote, I then had to decide whether I was a Republican or Democrat. See, Nikki has no core beliefs other than doing whatever her globalist masters, paymasters, want her to say. The Reckoning with Timothy Shea on today's News Talk TNT. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. 
At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. If you're still wearing a cloth or a surgical mask around in public, you're guilty of spreading COVID misinformation. It really is that simple. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, Keith Pitt, uh, state premiers are under fire today. I- I've got to say, I don't blame them. Um, there are reports that claim that several of these state premiers have written to the Reserve Bank, no doubt the governor, pleading for an easing of interest rates when the Reserve Bank meets on Tuesday. Is this fair game? It's only a request. Well, I'm like everyone. I'd like to pay less for my mortgage, Chris. I'm, I'm no different to everyone listening to your show. Yeah. Uh, but the idea that the premiers would be involved terrifies me. Uh, if you look at Victoria, well, they're broke uh, off the back of Dan Andrews and the decision that he he took. Stephen Miles, the replacement for Anastasia Palaszczuk, the, the new Anastasia, well, he's got coal royalties that are pulling in an extra $5 billion a year. So $15 billion in coal royalties alone out of an $18 billion roughly take per year. Uh, and he's distributing that around, throwing it about like confetti because, well, he thinks that'll help him win the election. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the premiers, I don't like them running the state economy, no matter getting involved federally. Uh, now, can I just talk about Queensland? For those outside of Australia where we may see one of the first, apart from Tasmania, one of the first Liberal um, National Party governments occur in the mainland uh, since the last federal election. Um, do you think Chris Afuli can win? And do you think, as I do, that the Premier is is just a replica of Anastasia Palaszczuk and uh, they are destined for the dustbin? Well, you could take a cut out of Anastasia Palaszczuk and put Stephen Miles' face on it. Uh, they are one in the same. Yeah. So in, in Queensland, I mean, we, we've only held government on my side of politics once in the last 30 years with Campbell Newman. Uh, and I think there's a real chance now. But there's a long way to go, Chris. And as you know, no election is done, dusted and decided until about the Wednesday before the Saturday. So there's a lot of water under the bridge. Uh, I'll be supporting the Liberal National Party uh, and looking to try and make sure that they win government in Queensland because... This Labor government, we, we have ambulance ramping like you wouldn't believe. I counted eight at the Bundaberg Base Hospital uh, during the week. Uh, you've, you've got challenges with youth crime where they're literally breaking into houses and stealing cars in the morning and they're bailed in the afternoon. Yeah. Uh, and I think everyone in Queensland is just sick of it. They want someone that will stand up for law and order and that is our side of politics. Yeah, very true. Uh, the Foreign Minister Penny Wong... <laughs> can't help but show her true stripes when it comes to the Gaza war. She's indicated this morning that she wants to reinstate funding to the suspect 
United Nations Humanitarian Aid Agency, ASAP. What doesn't she understand about funds being funnelled to terrorism? And that's the charge. Well, there's a very simple piece here. It is unlawful to support terrorists, full stop. Yeah. Uh, and I think that even if there's a remote risk that money is getting through to terrorists uh, in Israel and Lebanon, that is just disgraceful and it shouldn't be continued. Now, I know it's an absolute tragedy what's happening over there, but the idea that a single taxpayer's dollar anytime, anywhere, gets to supporting terrorists, mm. well, clearly I'll be opposed and I hope Penny Wong's making some very, very careful decisions. Yeah, all you've got to do is look at pre-October 7 Gaza Strip and where did all the billions go to, Keith? Where did they go to? Uh, look, it's a lot of money and, you know, this is a tough issue, but I'm anti-terrorist uh, and the activities that happened over there in Israel are completely unacceptable. Uh, and what is it that people expect that they would have done? Sit around and say, thanks very much, please come again. Yeah, yeah. So I understand why they've taken the action that they have. Uh, and there's some easy stuff here. Release all the hostages. Step mm. one. Yeah, just do it. Do it. What's this about New Zealand moving closer to be part of the trilateral uh, AUKUS agreement? Now, I read that story today, and I think of New Zealand as very pro-China. I think of New Zealand as very anti-nuclear, but they do have a new government that seems to be looking um, a little bit um, through problems rather than at them face on. It seems as if they might have come up with a solution here. Well, there's a new government in New Zealand, and guess what? They're pro-New Zealand. Yes. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> How good is that? Uh, and they're actually making some decisions which means, uh, you know, there's fair access to health systems for all New Zealanders, for example. Uh, and around with uh, AUKUS, uh, in terms of the second tier, uh, there's an opportunity for them, I guess, to engage and be involved with uh, cybersecurity in particular. Uh, and I was in uh, the, the Silicon Valley in the last couple of weeks meeting with some very serious players in that area. AI is coming. It's coming like an avalanche. Uh, it is terrifying. I'm not sure how we're going to manage the changes it'll make around the world, but it will tip the world upside down. Uh, and it's no surprise to me that the new New Zealand government want to be involved. They want to protect their citizens. And that's exactly why governments are elected. Yeah. I, I worry that we are worried about AI. Yes, I know um, it can be dangerous in the wrong hands, but I don't know how laws are going to change that. What I do know is the world, Australia in particular, needs a productivity spike and AI can provide a productivity spike. Do we agree? It can, but it can also create a lot of job losses. Uh, one, of, one of the very senior people in Silicon Valley a couple of weeks ago said to me, it's the dot-com boom times 10,000. And if you look at the potential for a foreign actor, for example, uh, to use it in a detrimental way to our country, uh, that's something I'm significantly concerned about. I don't know how we manage and police it, but there's smarter people out there than me, Chris. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sure we should be looking for options to make sure we can get the right outcomes here. Yes, it'll pr provide boost in productivity. That's great. Uh, but I'm very concerned about what will happen with social cohesion and the potential for people to simply peel away and just not engage. Yeah, We'll follow it closely, as you will, no doubt, as well. Thank you so much for your time. You're back in Canberra next week. Uh, yes, from Sunday, we are back in the circus, in the big top, because that's where all the clowns are a lot of times. <laughs> we'll be watching. Thank you very much for your time, Keith. Great to be with you. Good on you. Good to have you on the program. Keith Pitt uh, from the National Party, federal MP in uh, Queensland and a fellow that uh, can spot BS from a 1,000 miles away. That's the way I like to describe him. I, I want to refer you to an article I picked up today about Elon Musk I'm quite fascinated in 
Elon Musk, his background, the connection to his family, et cetera, et cetera. I just am. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm I hero worship worship the guy, but I think that he does a whole heap of things fabulously. And uh, and yet at the same time, I think there's a, an amateurish streak in Elon Musk that uh, we've got to be careful about. But there's a story today, and uh, I thought it was worth just giving you a little bit of it. Elon Musk, the outspoken billionaire who leads electric automaker Tesla, has a tenuous hold on the title world's richest person. How rich is he? Have you thought about that? Let me tell you. He grabbed the crown in 2021 as the world's richest person, ousting Amazon founder Jeff Bezos. But Musk's top position could be in peril after a Delaware court ruled this week that his $56 billion compensation package at Tesla was unfair, ordering him to return significant stock options he's received over the past five years. While the options return would likely knock him out of the top spot, Musk would still be a billionaire many times over. So when you saw that story earlier in the week and I sort of went, wow, that's a lot of money, as you would have. It's not a lot of money in the context of what he has. Musk derives most of his $202 billion worth, you heard right, not $202 million, $202 billion, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index, from his stakes in various companies. Musk lacks significant tranches of cash. His money is largely tied up in ownership stakes of these companies. To buy Twitter in 2022, he leveraged his large share in Tesla and solicited investors rather than relying on liquid sums, no cash. Uh, here's what he holds in terms of wealth. Tesla, uh, stake value, stake value, $77 billion in terms of shares, $49.8 billion in terms of options. He holds 411 million shares and about 304 million Tesla options, totaling $127 billion. Um, his compens well, we won't go into the compensation package. Yes, it's a hit, but it uh, it won't cripple Elon Musk. Um, SpaceX, Musk's stake in SpaceX, $71.2 billion. So it's 42% approximately. Uh, his ambitions aren't limited to Earth, as we know. He wants humans to land on Mars. Uh, Musk founded SpaceX, a private firm that builds rockets and satellites in 2002. Uh, X, otherwise known as Twitter, stake 79%. His value, stake value, $8.4 He bought it for $44 billion, as I mentioned in 2002 and 22. There's the Boring Company. He was the founder. Um, the Boring Company is his proposed solution to congestion, personalised mass transit via tunnels. His stake, 3.3 billion, 3.3, that's chicken feed, $3 billion chicken feed. Um, and that's just for starters. And there are other companies that have lesser stake value, but it gives you an idea of the wealth this bloke has. And yes, many millions of dollars will be a pain in the pocket, but not such a pain for the richest man in the world, $202 billion. 
Let's get you a news update very briefly. Right now, let's go to the newsroom on TNT. Hey, we're getting back to the news. TNT Radio News. What the f***? Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. US President Joe Biden has been slammed for once again likening his son's cancer-related death to the loss of US troops killed by enemy fire overseas. Meanwhile, there's growing speculation the 81-year-old may not be president for much longer, even if he is lucky enough to win a second term in office. And as talk of a new world war heats up, Britain has announced plans to test fire a nuclear missile to be launched from a submarine in the Atlantic. The common housefly, caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes just makes matters worse. Then dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Whoa. Dinner's ready. Oh, man. Escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNTradio.live Now, if you love a good documentary, uh, then you'll love our special screenings, uninterrupted cinema features, some of the latest or notable documentaries from the world's best filmmakers. You can check out TNT's website for more information. Weekends are better when you spend it with today's news talk on TNT. All right. I've been waiting to speak with Rebecca Barnett for some time because I think the face of COVID-19 in terms of vaccines is changing. Finally, we're allowing people to have their say without cancelling them, without censoring them. Oh, no, we're still censoring. But at least we're not cancelling and, and taking away their ability to become doctors or be doctors. This week in Australia, some very credible and wise physicians have been speaking freely, would you believe, about the dangers of the COVID mRNA vaccines and the need for a real inquiry into the way we managed the pandemic. Now, yesterday I played for you a plea from the previous day from one outspoken doctor based in Tasmania to this Senate inquiry uh, for a royal commission, and she was very clear about why there needed to be a Royal Commission. And in the same hearing, but yesterday, Professor Ian Brighthope, a retired medical practitioner with over 40 years of experience, but a forceful, put a forceful argument to the committee about the current dangers of taking a COVID vaccine. As you can see over here... We know it's not going to stay in the deltoid muscle. It would never stay in the deltoid muscle as we were promised. It travels all around the body. It travels to the brain, to the heart, to the blood vessels, travels to the testes and the ovaries. And this is why we're seeing so many uh, uh, people suffering from serious adverse reactions, including a lot of heart disease, uh, degenerative uh, central nervous system type disorders, autoimmune diseases, uh, and certainly many, many problems, uh, gynecological problems, female problems. This uh, also uh, contains DNA fragments and DNA and mRNA can uh, transcribe and end up in the nucleus of our cells, in, including our germ cells. This is so risky, it should never have been injected into a single human being ever. Ever, Professor Brighthope. And look, as I like to reinforce every time I talk about this subject, 
well, as often as I remember doing. Um, I was one of those who listened to all of those eminent epidemiologists night after night as I presented my Sky News program or other Sky News programs and telling people we've got to take the jab because we do it as a group to ensure that we're safe. And all the epidemiologists telling us things like, oh, they've had enormous amount of research on this and they've done the, uh, the, they've done the work they would have done in 10 years and all that dribble. But now the difference is Bright Hope back then um, wasn't agreeing with the epidemiologists, but now he's got the data to show what has gone wrong. And that is the difference. And for that reason, I um, am free to admit and happily admit that I got most of that wrong. Uh, now we've got plenty of evidence to show how wrong some of us were. Let's cross to Perth now and speak with independent journalist Rebecca Barnett. Rebecca's work can be read via Dystopian Down Under. Rebecca Barnett, welcome back to TNT. Good to be here. Welcome to my home office where I am uh, have a snack within reach at all times. Uh, that's good. You know, it's always <laughs> interesting because we're, because we're visual now. We're not just all the <laughs> We get an insight into everyone's homes and you learn a lot yeah. about what's behind people. <laughs> my kitchen. <laughs> uh, fantastic. Listen, <laughs> Professor Brighthope, he's no dummy. He's no extremist. In fact, he's a researcher and he yeah. educates medical professionals right around the globe. What's your reaction to that part of his testimony yesterday? I think it shows that what we've been operating under is an illusion of consensus. What you said before was that you were led to believe that all the epidemiologists and all the doctors thought that this is safe and effective, this has been tested enough, it's the only solution, and that was never the case. Um, we were just led to believe it was the case. Um, Jay Bhattacharya, actually, who was one of the co-authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, has a podcast and substack called The Illusion of Consensus, and I think that's been one of the big reveals, especially now that the data's coming in because it's giving the people who always dissented um, a platform for speaking, you know, it's, or it's, it's backing them in a bit where they've been saying, as Professor Brighthope said, he wrote to everyone who mattered to say, hey, why don't we do some prevention? Why don't we do some early treatment? But no one listened and no one wanted to do it. Well, now he's actually got data to show that he was correct to argue for that. So he's, you know, it gives him uh, something to... I mean, it gives him more credibility, I guess, whereas he was previously just waved off as, you know, I don't know, being a conspiracy theorist or whatever they call medical, medically trained, highly regarded doctors who just don't agree with whatever the official narrative is. Yeah, and they were prevented from expressing that view and threatened from expressing that view. It was outrageous. Now, all of those witnessed yesterday and the previous day, as MP Senator Malcolm Roberts pointed out in a press release today, all said we need a royal commission, but we have this weak, uh, censored, narrow inquiry coming up, don't we? Yeah, well, the problem with the current inquiry, which you've probably talked about because it's just so glaringly obvious that it's the problem, which is that it doesn't include large chunks of the COVID response because it exempts all the state directives. Yeah. Um, so, you know, things like... Uh, lockdowns which were enacted on a state-by-state -state level won't even be looked at under the current inquiry all the premiers get off the hook they don't even have to face the music yeah yeah so obviously it's a useless inquiry if you can't take into account you know the main chunk of the COVID response what's the point of doing it yeah. probably just to whitewash and rub it and say oh look how well we did 
Um, so definitely a Royal Commission appears. If you're going to bother doing an inquiry, it obviously needs to be a Royal Commission. Yeah, very, very true. Now explain something to me. Senator Jared Rennick asked Professor Mark Morgan, who's the chair of the Expert Committee Quality of Care for the RACGP, why his organisation failed to warn of the risks of immune imprinting. Now, Professor Morgan said, and I don't blame him, um, he said he doesn't even know what immune imprinting is. This is rather yeah. odd. Yeah, and so credit to him for being um, candid. I thought he actually answered the questions very well and didn't um, he, he didn't engage in that kind of double speak and, and pussyfooting around. He just answered the questions, which was refreshing. Um, but, of course, he doesn't know what immune imprinting is, I suppose, because um, GPs aren't immunologists and they're not trained in vaccinology and they don't really have any knowledge of brand-new uh, technologies that many would argue are a gene therapy. None of that is, is part of their training, and I confirmed that with um, an immunology expert, uh, Dr Jessica Rose, yesterday. I've been chatting to her about this, and also Dr Julie Sladden, who you um, who you referenced just earlier. She was the outspoken Tasmanian doctor. I've just yeah. was her just before I jumped on your show, and both of them said, you know, doctors get no training in this. How, how should they know about um, original antigenic sin, you know, why would they know that vaccinating in the middle of a pandemic is just going to imprint people's immune systems? Well, the risk is that it imprints people's immune systems with an um, with a response to an older and with a response to an older variant, and that when the new variant comes along, it's kind of like stuck in the way that Dr. Rose explained it is like it's stuck in the 80s, but now it's the 90s. You yes. know, it's like the immune system just is giving you a response to an older variant, and so you get a let's just say less effective result, um, and that that can and that builds up over time the more shots you have. Um, so of course they didn't know about that. Yeah. Which makes it a waste of time. And I noticed, just question without notice, I noticed some of the booster rates at the moment are less than 10%. Gee, <laughs> we've come a long way, thankfully, since we got up to 98. Yeah, well, it's amazing what happens when you allow people to earn a living without having to take a medical procedure in order to do it. Mm. Um, also, I think people can see, I mean, when I ask, you know, just your everyday, ordinary people who are just out in the world living their lives they're not obsessed with covid they're not it's they're not um they're not wearing know. a mask yeah they're, they're just normal people just going about their lives and they're all scratching their heads a bit they're like what was all that about you know they told us we had to get vaccinated to protect everyone but it didn't stop me getting covid it didn't stop me giving it to people what was that all about and it seems to be only the expert class that's doing these backflips trying to um explain why really it's still effective even though it didn't do the things that we said it would do and i heard professor mark morgan say oh well it was really just to prevent protect everyone from severe illness, in which case you just have to say, well, why did they keep telling us it would protect the community? Why did they keep saying that um, if it was only ever to, um, you know, why did they keep saying protect your loved ones by taking it yourself if it wasn't supposed to do that? Mm. So I think that most people know it's not a very good product. <laughs> um, it's really only the experts who maybe their ego just won't allow them to admit what you did, which is so exemplary, is to say, I got it wrong. I've adjusted yeah. my position as I learned more information. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did. I did. You know, um, 
I got encouraged by some of the places I worked to follow a line as well, I've got to admit to you. Um, but having said that, you know, it's now very, very plain to me that masks are a waste of time. It's now very, very plain to me that we would have been better in parks, uh, separated maybe by a half a metre or maybe maybe less, um, than locked up at home on top of each other. Like, that didn't – that was just a waste of time. And it, and it only made it worse. Anyway, I want to move on. One of my viewers sent me an extract from an unusual source, the Sydney Criminal Lawyers Report. Anyway, it says, there's a growing momentum around the acknowledgement of vaccination injuries, despite them being ignored by Big Pharma, the medical profession, and governments around the world, including our own. As medical professionals point out, unless a vaccine injury was diagnosed immediately following the COVID-19 vaccination, it can be hard to detect. Of course, back in 2020, 2021, doctors were threatened with deregistration, but not promoting positive messages around the government rollout of COVID vaccinations and vaccination mandates. Even now, when GPs don't want to consider the potential for vaccination injury in patients, are we seeing the penny drop, Rebecca? And is free speech returning to this former Australian democracy? Oh, no, not yet, because the information <laughs> is is still um, hanging over us like the sword of Damocles. <laughs> so, I yeah, look, people like to say, "Oh, the dam is breaking," "Oh, the floodgates are opening." I don't know. I um, it's not that I'm pessimistic, although my Substack is called Dystopian Down Under, so maybe I do you know err a little bit that way, but. I for sure am encouraged that it's becoming less taboo to talk about vaccine injuries because, you know, these days most people know someone or several yeah. people have been injured. So, you know, good that we can talk about that more, mostly because we need to talk about it because we need research and we need support services for the people who showed up thinking they were doing the right thing and now have been completely abandoned. Yeah. So. We need to be talking about it for that reason. Um, but, you know, does that mean suddenly there's going to be accountability? I don't know. We had an encouraging win um, in South Australia um, yeah. where Daniel Shepherd, a 44-year-old youth worker, has been awarded compensation. His employer, ironically, so under a state government mandate, his state government department employer coerced him into getting a vaccine. Um, and then the state government department, the DCP, um, tried to say, oh, but it was a state government mandate. It wasn't us, so we don't have to pay. <laughs> um, but the judge, you know, just made a, a fair and reasonable um, application of the law, which was, well, you know, his employment was significantly um, contributing to his injury. And the judge said something to the effect that, you know, surely we can't imagine that the people who, the parliamentarians who brought, who allowed, who brought in this mandate would intend that anyone injured under the mandate would not be cared for. We, we couldn't imagine that that would be what they meant. So he said, of course, this man is owed workers' compensation. That was really um, a really encouraging win uh, because there have been numerous workers' compensation claims that have not been successful because of that, um, the employer saying, well, it wasn't us, we just followed orders and therefore we're not responsible. So it was very meaningful that this that this uh, decision fell in Daniel Shepard's favour. It can be appealed, so we won't know until mid uh, to late February if uh, he's going to have to fight for it in the High Court. Um 
we'll see. But so far, so good with that one. It is It is the right kind of decision. You're exactly right. Now, something I spotted today from the esteemed and very brave Texan specialist, Dr. Mary Talon Bowden, who I've had on the program several times here, is that in the US now, they have 115 candidates, 110 elected officials, and one Surgeon General from 36 states publicly stating the COVID shots must be pulled off the market. Many are also pledging not to take donations from Big Pharma. Over 17,000 physicians stand beside them. That is a tide of protest, isn't it? Totally. It's really encouraging. I wish we had numbers like that in Australia. Unfortunately, you can barely tell the Liberals and Labor apart on this issue in Australia. Although there are a few notable Liberals. Russell Broadbent has... um, Stood, stood out. And then, of course, we've got um, Alex Antic and... Um, Jared Rennick. Rennick. And then, yeah, we've got, of course, a handful of others from the smaller parties and independents. But, um, yeah, Australian politicians have been, um, I'm going to say, even ca- cowardly on this. Or, of course or they, they have. Who knows? But, yeah, it is really encouraging. I'm not surprised. I would be... I would take a guess that most of those politicians are Republican. There does seem to be quite a strong partisan divide on this issue, um, which is not necessarily a bad thing, I suppose, if if there's a big number of them and they can create quite a quite a big noise and quite a big push. But I did notice notice in the last um, Rasmussen poll on uh, they they did a poll and, and it turned out that the majority of Americans actually think that the vaccines are driving excess deaths. Or, or are quite likely to be driving excess deaths, but you know, sort of predictably, because it's such a politicized issue, um, more Republicans thought that than Democrats. So it does still seem to be like my team says this and my team says that yeah, kind of issue. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. There is a little bit of that still going on. I've run out of time, big time. I'm sorry but- I couldn't get to everything we wanted to speak about, but we'll get another opportunity. I hope. Rebecca Barnett, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Chris. Good to come on. No problem. Dystopian down under is what you need to look for when you're looking for the work of Rebecca Barnett. Must take a break. We're talking recruitment and staff right after this on TNT. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. I really don't understand how this trial between Michael Mann and Mark Stein is continuing. And I don't know if Dr. Mann wanted to put his hockey stick on trial. There are so many holes in his argument. It is hard to believe. I don't even understand how people could have let that out without questioning it. And I've talked about this before. One of the biggest problems I have is he won't let anyone look at his data, at least no one that is skeptical of his data. And that should raise red flags. Now I've talked about this many, many times. You can go and look at what the global temperature does. When it's warm in the eastern and central part of the United States and warm across Europe, usually the global temperature is elevated. Now, when it's cold in those areas, believe it or not, the global temperature is actually colder. The problem with this whole hockey stick and the recreation of temperatures from pine cones is the areas he looks at and draws his ideas from are usually cold when the earth is warm. So he would not be able to detect that. He would not know that because he's not a meteorologist. If he was a meteorologist, would he know it? Of course he'd know it because we talk about this all the time. They're called teleconnections. So if I were in there talking about this, I'd be asking, where is your meteorology background and are you aware of this going on? But in any case, this whole hockey stick 
idea of temperature recreation looks to be more of a hokey stick to a lot of us out there. And the first red flag is you wouldn't let anyone look at your data. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Whatever happens to good, it's a word that gets thrown around a lot and it's become our automatic answer to so much. Hey, how's things? Good. Your mum, your weekend? Good, good. Is good even that good anymore? At the Selbos, we believe good deserves better. Let's reclaim its true meaning. To us, good has always been about making a difference and good never picks or chooses who it helps. Isn't it time we all remember what good really means? This is The Chris Smith Show on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Well, is it just my older age or are young Gen Z staff so entitled and blasé about work it makes us feel like slaves? I think I'm not as old as I sound like I am. And even the Fair Work Commission is starting to side siding with some of these entitled prats and brats. Let's bring in Graham Wynn, workplace expert, founder and director of Superior People Recruitment based in Melbourne. Graham Wynn, welcome back to TNT. Good afternoon, Chris. All right, I'm going to keep an open mind. No, I'm not going to keep an open mind. I take that back. A Gen Z employee has sparked furious debate after telling their boss, um, let me get this right, telling their boss that they couldn't attend an 8 a.m. meeting because they had a workout class. Now, it's gone off on TikTok. It's a big debate. But, Graham, the last time I went to a gym, I did know that they opened at about 5 a.m. in the morning. Well, I'll be honest with you. To me, if you've got a full-time job, an 8 a.m. gym workout is unacceptable anyway because how do you get to work on time? By going to the gym at 8 o'clock. So I'm surprised she goes that time anyway. Yeah. They do open at 5. Some of them open 24 hours a day these days, don't they? Yeah. So yeah. you don't need to go at 8 o'clock in the morning. There's actually a debate occurring in the federal parliament, and I raised this with Keith Pitt earlier today about whether bosses should even make contact with their staff after hours. This is not the way of the future. This is going the other way. It is, yes, absolutely, yes. But with the, with this particular case, though, when she only a new hire, so only recently started working there, and before she started, actually in her contract, we have quarterly eight hour meetings. Once a quarter, we have an eight. So she knew that. Yeah. And as soon as the first one came up, she said, I can't attend. I've got a workout class. Wow. And therefore, she's wanting, well, who's going to pay for my workout class? Are you going to give me more time for this? And it's a new job. And that was her attitude. And you, you can't accept that. You cannot accept that. No. Get a grip. Now, as I mentioned, there's some evidence that the work, Fair Work Commission is mollycoddling some of these younger workers. A young hairdresser sacked for constantly using her phone and talking about herself to clients has been awarded a payout from her former employer after lodging an unfair dismissal case with the Fair Work Commission. Georgia McGannon had not only been gossiping but slammed her toxic job on TikTok. Can you please explain that decision to me? I'll try and explain it to you because it's a really crazy one, this one. Basically, she'd been using her phone regularly, saying the wrong things, online doing bad bad calls about the workplace, and she'd been spoken to that about five or six times. And then one occasion, she upset a client who said, I'm not coming back again. So they gave her a warning about that. And then 24 hours later, decided, no, it's not going to work this, we're going to sack you. Now, because she was sacked for that reason, that's where Fairworks said, she didn't have time to rectify that situation. Oh, and Fair Work actually said 
there were plenty of other reasons to justify sacking her. But the reason they sacked her wasn't justifiable. So she could have been sacked for 20 other different things, but the one thing they sacked her for wasn't fair. And the other thing they said was that because she was new to the workforce, she could be experiencing things she wasn't used to. So we need to make allowances. See, this is so typical. And having employed a lot of people and sacked a few, but not many, um, I realised that if you wanted someone to be removed, you kind of had to get them committing this uh, unacceptable uh, gossiping or unacceptable misbehaviour on three separate occasions. You can't have one occasion of not doing the job properly and one occasion of gossiping and another occasion of being on the phone. You've got to have three phones, three bad work examples or three cases of misbehaviour. It's mad. It is. And the way around it is simply say your first warning is for general performance. Just cover it all under general performance. And there, that way, next one, again, your general performance. That's how you get around it. But right. So, so say, you can use, use the system that way? Absolutely, yes. But as soon as you start giving warnings for specific things, right. that then's where this you need three for that specific thing. And that's the mistake they made. Apparently, you have five warnings about using a mobile phone during the day, but they didn't dismiss her over that. And Fair Work said you could have, but right. you didn't. But okay. the one reason they then said, because you upset a client who wouldn't come back, and they only gave her 24 hours to rectify that situation, okay. that's why it was unfair dismissal. And Fair Work said you could have sacked her for many other reasons, but that reason was wrong. Okay. So, so, so that's a great educational case for people mm. to learn how difficult it is running a workplace. One quick one. I've only got two minutes left yep. on another issue. A new study has claimed the process of hiring staff based on qualifications may be unfair. Researchers at the American Psychological Association are now claiming that socioeconomic disparities should be the focus. Here we go. This is all this diversity, equity, inclusive stuff. So in other words, you probably might have to hire the fifth best qualified person based on DEI. That's correct. They're saying we have to be more open to employing not the right people for the job, but the one who may be at a disadvantage in life in some reason and pick them because otherwise they won't get a job. So your workplace is going to suffer because you have to employ somebody who's not as good as 10 other people potentially could be. Stop. Like, seriously, I came from the boondocks. I came from southwestern Sydney. Um, we had our dramas. Let me tell you, tell you socioeconomic dramas, big time. But I saw it as a as a lesson in resilience, and it made me better qualified than others who came from better educational opportunities and better households. Absolutely, and this is a long line these days where you know school sports, everyone gets a medal just for participating rather than just the winners. It's a real knock on from that. That basically we need to give everyone the same chance despite their upbringing, and you may not be as qualified or experienced, but we're going to give you a go. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Graham Wynn, fantastic to have you on the program once again from Superior People Recruitment based in Melbourne. Um, we'll get a longer period next time and we'll talk and flesh out some of these uh, issues a little bit more. Thank you for your time. You're very welcome, Chris. Talk again soon. Take care. Good on you, Graham Wynn. Um, and I should mention some quick thing. I was going to mention it with Rebecca, but I didn't have time. I'm astounded at a hospital in Colac during the week. The minister came to visit the Colac Hospital. So they didn't have enough patients. So apparently family members and staff posed as patients during the visit. And now they got caught out and there's a Victorian inquiry into it.
that's about as fake as you can get a hospital visit as possible. But anyway, um, I've got to go, and I'll leave you in the very capable hands for the last time this week with Dean Macken. I'm off to uh, enjoy my weekend. I hope when you get to your weekend, you too can have a fantastic time. And come back uh, fit and healthy on Monday to join us at the same time. This is Chris Smith on TNT. TNT.